Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us your Son. Thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit. Thank you, triune God, that you have saved us by grace through faith, not of works, lest any one of us should boast. And that faith is resting simply and solely in Jesus Christ who gave his life for us. Lord, we thank you for the great blessing and privilege of gathering together today. We ask that you would help us to uh, gain the maximum benefit, uh, certainly from uh, being with one another, that we would stir one another up to love and good works, that we would be pointed to Jesus Christ and the hope that we have in him. But it is not about us. It is um, uh, our focus is on you. And so we pray that you would lead us to worship even now as we, we learn from your word. We pray that our attentiveness to the scriptures would be in and of itself an act of worship. We pray that the, um, uh, the way this message is conveyed would bring you honor and glory. And we ask in complete reliance and dependence on the Holy Spirit, that you would work in each of us according to your goodwill and pleasure. We ask, Lord, that you would be with brothers and sisters who are unable to join us in person today. Particularly, we pray for those who are sick. There are a, a good number who have been wrestling with illness for a while in some form. For, for some, it is, it is chronic. For others, it is um, perhaps more seasonal. And for still others, it's a combination of the two. Whatever their ailments, whether they be uh, bodily or um, uh, mental or uh, some combination psychosomatically, we pray, Lord, for your healing upon them. And we ask, Lord, that um, in this moment that they would, regardless of what comes, that they would put their hope and trust in you who, who raised Jesus from the dead, knowing that you are able and praying that you will. We ask, Lord, that you would um, be with those who are traveling, for those who are simply representing us in other places. We thank you for David and for his faithfulness to serve, um, uh, not least in the media team. Uh, we ask that you would bless him and uh, uh, Grace Church Enfield Lock through him as he's uh, meeting with them this morning. We uh, ask, too, that you would be with the, uh, the Silva family as they travel uh, for some time away after a, a, an intense uh, season of work. Uh, we pray that you would give them a restful holiday. Uh, for others still besides who are traveling, uh, Myrna and still, still others perhaps uh, who um, have slipped my mind, we pray that you would watch over and protect them and bring them back to us safely. But we pray that their time away would be restful, would be restorative, and um, yes, certainly uh, uh, refreshing in body and mind, but we pray, Lord, that you would rejuvenate and revitalize all of our souls as we reflect on the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, for anyone here today who is hurting, we pray that you would bring healing. For anyone who is um, hungry uh, for, uh, for truth, we pray that you would reveal it to them. For any who are um, uh, desperate, um, anxious, we pray that you would, uh, you would put them at ease. And we ask, Lord, that you would bring all of us uh, into right relationship with you, forgiving us of our sins and um, guiding us in all truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, in your Bibles this morning, the New uh, 
I was about to say the New Testament gospel according to Ruth. Uh, that's, that's kind of the angle we've taken with, with Ruth. Everything points to Jesus Christ, but it is in the Old Testament. It did come before Jesus, the Old Testament book of Ruth. And we're going to continue this great narrative, Ruth chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. I'm going to read and we're going to uh, go up to verse 12. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he, he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Well, then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Well, then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself. Uh, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, uh, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to uh, Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Lee, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. We'll stop there. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Now, some of you uh, are perhaps visiting uh, for the first time or maybe the first time in a long time. And you've missed everything up to this point. And of all the Sundays for you to, to visit, uh, the, the, the text talks about um, 
uh, shoe exchanges and wife buying and some strange stuff that doesn't exactly connect with you or really any of us, lest you be worried, like, is this something that they're, they're into? Is this how they do things today? Truth be told, read the text carefully and you'll see that wasn't even how they did things in the days that the author was writing because he has to say, that's just how they did things then. Uh, and he doesn't really explain it. Why? What, what's the deal with the shoes? Um, but we'll just put your mind at ease. Um, it, it is a historical narrative. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. We've talked about that before, but there's still some fantastic lessons that we can learn from this. And I trust that if you're here, you know, getting familiar with the Bible, getting familiar with this story, um, that you'll, you'll give it a chance to speak for itself uh, so that you move from a place perhaps of this is weird to this is wonderful. Because it is. Let's, uh, let's get, get cracking with that. So the story picks up where we left off last week. Um, Boaz has told Ruth, I will redeem you. I will redeem your family. I will redeem you know, Naomi and the estate of Elimelech. Leave it with me. Ruth goes back to Naomi, her mother-in-law, and says... You know, I, I, I really tried. I, you, you told me to look good and to smell nice and to go to Boaz and maybe something would happen. And I'm, not, I'm just not really sure where we are at in this relationship. He, he's, you know, said leave it with me, but off he goes. And I just, you know, I don't know how long I'm going to exist in this place of vulnerability. Remember, Ruth is a widow. Naomi is a widow. Naomi is old and past the point of really anyone um, paying her much attention other than making sure her needs are met. But they're not even doing that. Two hungry women without protection, without provision, who are scrapping around in the fields for what little bits of grain they can gather. And they're existing in this legally gray area where they actually don't own anything. They can't own anything, but they kind of do. They're on the land of Elimelech and, um, and Malon and Kilion for that matter, but, but all three of the men in their family are dead and the law at that time didn't have provisions really beyond, okay, is there a redeemer, a, a husband that can, can take responsibility for you? Boaz was going to be that guy, but he says there's someone nearer to you. Where's he been all this time? This, this closer redeemer. Well, Boaz said, leave it with me. There's one closer. I'm going to go and sort this out. Naomi says to Ruth, basically to rest, to wait. Boaz will sort it out. In fact, you can rest because Boaz will not rest. He will get it done today. And that's what we just read. The story of how Boaz, not letting a moment pass, not frittering away the time, not um, uh, procrastinating things to death, actually gets up and takes action for the redemption of these, uh, these women. But we, we, uh, we, we can't get there without first exploring this other redeemer, who we will call this morning an absent 
Redeemer. If we remember him at all, it is for not doing anything. Months have gone by. The barley harvest, the wheat harvest, at least around 50 days have passed. Remember, we were talking about the, the, the barley harvest and that time around um, the, uh, the Passover. And then we, uh, we noticed that the wheat harvest is the time around what we're, we're more familiar with as Pentecost. So uh, in that time frame, Ruth and Naomi have been back in town and this man hasn't shown his face. Months have gone by, and he has not, as an Israelite man, a covenant man, a responsible man, a redeemer man, stepped up to care for these women who have been left destitute by the destructive impact of famine, migration, the deaths of their husbands, and the move back to Bethlehem. Where is he? Where was he? When, when the widowed wives of his kinsmen, Elimelech and Malon, arrived in town, it caused quite, quite a stir. Do you remember that? The commotion that it caused when they arrived back in town and they're all talking about, is this, is this Naomi and who's this other person with her and all of it? They knew, this man knew, he couldn't have missed it. It seems he sort of backed away into the shadows. Where was he? Where was he when Ruth was reduced to going out hungry and needy to the fields to scrap around for grain that had fallen on the path so that she and Naomi had a little something to eat. Why did it fall to Boaz, this more distant relative, to provide hospitality, generosity, and some degree of safety in a very dangerous place at a dangerous time? Where was this other redeemer? Why was it in Boaz's fields that Ruth found refuge? Why was it at Boaz's feet that Ruth found rest? Why is it now that Ruth is home waiting for redemption, not from this man, but from Boaz? The hope, the anticipation of the conclusion of chapter three is not that this nearer kinsman will suddenly step into the scene. They don't want to know him. He's not been there. The hope is that Boaz is going to get this sorted out. We can legitimately ask all of these questions about the absence of this nearer, purportedly, redeemer. Boaz is beyond impeccable in his integrity, even involving this man, if you think about it. There's a real and uncomfortable Chance that after all of this disinterest and neglect up to this point, the unnamed potential redeemer, think about this. What if the unnamed potential redeemer might still find it within himself to claim the land and with the land Ruth as his wife? We see that with uh, maybe we don't have the same legal setup where we have people who are, are marrying into a family to, to rejuvenate that dead family line. That's, that's not our setup. But you see stuff like this when someone dies, when there's an inheritance, especially. Not when there's not an inheritance. Uh, that's, you know, you end up with the person who has no one at their funeral and there's the, you know, uh, the, the man that's, you know, will preside over the, the funeral. The council will pay for it and there might be one or two Randoms who knew the person in their late life. No one cares because there's nothing to get. 
but you see it when someone dies with an inheritance, don't you? Suddenly someone takes great interest and they, they resurface. They're back on the scene. So in this scenario, people are alive, but there's also people who are dead. And part of the inheritance is this property and this land. And this man hasn't claimed anything because of the complexities of it. But there's a real chance suddenly he will. Is that the kind of man that if we're looking on at this story, we're rooting for that character? We really want him to step up and claim Ruth as his wife. Not really. He's from my perspective. He's a passive redeemer. We've established that this uh, redeemer does not seem actively engaged in the matters of fulfilling the requirements of the law. And true to form, he does not initiate the redemptive work necessary to save Naomi and Ruth from their plight. And perhaps he's not watchful. Perhaps he's not alert to such things. Perhaps he's a bit dozy. Maybe simply unaware. He does not call a meeting to resolve the situation. Boaz calls the meeting. He does not take charge when the situation becomes clear. If we give him a pass and say he just didn't know, Boaz calls the meeting and says this is the situation. This man should have taken charge of the meeting. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sorry that I was, uh, you know, this is news to me. Why did no one tell me? Why did we leave it till now? Absolutely. And, and what about the women? What happened to Elimelech's wife? What happened to, to Malon and Kilion's wives? What, what, what's my responsibility to them? I need you to tell me what's expected so I can take action. He doesn't do that. Passive man. He responds. True enough. But responding is not the same as leading. So this, this potential redeemer is an absent redeemer. He is a passive redeemer. And he's also a self-serving redeemer. Uh, he was absent. Then he was present, but passive. He is told that the land needs redeeming as part of the Elimelech estate. And he responds when he hears about the land. Boaz is shrewdly giving him information on the drip feed. There's some land, and what does he say? I will redeem it. He doesn't really ask any questions about it. There's some real estate. I'll take it. I'm sure it has some value now, and it will accrue more. His redemption is thereby defined by opportunism, not altruism. In other words, he is taking advantage of the present, uh, presenting circumstance for his own benefit with little regard to others, instead of demonstrating a selfless concern for the well-being, and in this case, the redemption of others. Now, maybe you think I'm being too harsh. I don't know. You might say, you're, you're putting a lot on this guy. It's a bit intense. Sometimes, if you're thinking that, examine yourself. It could be that you see more of yourself in this guy. Maybe this is the type of character that you are. And that's why you don't like to uh, explore this in its uncomfortable areas. Again, I ask you, where was he? 
what was he doing up to this point? But there's some real estate that's up for grabs and he's there. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, Boaz then says, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it. Not for myself. Lest I impair my own inheritance. So it was never about looking after the land. It was never about taking care of and responsibility for these destitute women. It was what could he get out of it? And when he realizes that it has implications for his own inheritance, namely, also, if he has children by someone else, what, what they're going to get, what his family's going to get, because he's, his role as Redeemer is to resurrect the line of a dead man. That's his role. And he's not going to do it because I... I know it's my responsibility. I know I have a legal obligation to do this, but it has a negative impact on me and my inheritance and my memory, my name. So take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Notice the pattern. I will redeem it when he saw something of value. I cannot redeem it when he counted the cost. And think about the various things in your life that promise much but deliver little. That's, that say, I will redeem. But when you get a bit closer and the situation becomes a little more raw and real, I can't redeem it. I can't redeem you. Think about those various things that promise salvation, but cannot possibly carry the burden of saving. Who are you trusting? What are you trusting? In what have you placed your hopes and your, your dreams? That ha, ha, it's left you empty and it's left you bereft, and you, but you keep going to the wrong places. You're, you're seeking refuge in the wrong field where Boaz and Naomi both have indicated bad stuff happens to vulnerable people. You're, you're seeking rest in a place that will wear you out. And redemption, there's things that promise it that will never actually follow through. The potential redeemer is never called by name in this passage. Did you notice that? Never once do we see his name. Even Boaz. Boaz simply gives the ancient equivalent of a, um, hey, bro, how's it going? Don't really know your name. Um, you know, he says, friend, come over here to the side. That's what we do. We, we still do that, let's be honest. Middle Eastern so society has, I think, influenced uh, this quarter of North London in real terms. Uh, you, you hear it all the time, my friend. Guy at the corner shop, you don't really know him. You don't have a relationship with him. 
Oh, how are you, my friend? Um, the, the barber, you know, uh, you know, what will it be today, my friend? Uh, and, and, you know, my, my friend, we don't know this guy, and he's not really a friend. <laughs> Boaz calls him to the side, addresses him as friend. He is unnamed and forever unnamed, and, and, and so forever unknown, despite his eagerness to defend his inheritance and not be forgotten. A friend of mine, um, Jim Sayers, who is planting uh, Grace Church Didcot, um, shared his thoughts about this man with me a, a while back when we were talking about the, the text. And he said he thinks he, he's a fine example of a self-interested, risk-averse, middle-class man, devoid of grace, who plays it all safe, who the author chooses to leave nameless to the man's shame. And Jim is uh, not one given to um, inflammatory <laughs> comments or, um, you know, hard words. But the shoe fits. Now the question uh, for, for us today, of course, we can read this passage and it is not wrong to ask in the redemptive scenarios of our life, are we more like this potential redeemer? Do we find... And I, I might at this point even call out the men. Do you find yourselves to be absent more than present? Do you find yourselves to be passive more than active? Are you self-serving instead of sacrificial? There, there's someone not to follow. If you want to get out of that, this is not your hope. This is not your example. This man is a bad example of who you ought to be and how you ought to be as a man. In fact, you can read about this man and decide to be very much the opposite and you'll be on the right track. But there's something else that's going on here that goes, goes beyond just a natural application to men. All of us can learn about the failure of the things that we trust other than the actual Redeemer to save. The various works that we pursue, the various places that we go, the various belief systems we experiment with and philosophies we toy with and attitudes and actions that we mimic and mirror and, and, and um, seek to cultivate that are contrary to finding true redemption. The answer is always before us, but we keep rejecting it. We keep turning to one side and then to the other because we, we don't like the implication that in fact we are not the potential redeemer or the actual redeemer in this scenario. We are the ones who need redeeming. We're broken, we're needy, we're vulnerable, and we've trusted all the wrong people in all the wrong places. We need a Redeemer. Not only does the text tell us a potential Redeemer, we see uh, also the actual Redeemer. Notice the contrast between this potential Redeemer and the actual Redeemer in the text. This unnamed man next to Boaz. Boaz is present. He was there. He was active. He was working. He was attentive. He, he was present. 
He, he walks to the field, although he had people working for him, he shows up at the workplace and engages with, with his employees. And, 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 and flowing out of him is the blessings of God to those that work under him. And, and then he's attentive to this strange woman who's there, who's clearly not an Israelite, who is in need, who's scrapping around for grain. And who is she? What does she need? What's her story? He's, he's listening. He's learning about her. And then he's extending hospitality to her. And he's offering safety to her. And he's doing all of this with generosity. He's present. And um, he wants her to be present. He, he says, stay in my fields. Don't go to those other fields. Bad stuff happens to people in those fields. Stay in mine and you'll be safe. And he's there. And when it comes to the time of the, um, the wheat harvest, where is he? He's camping out with his men by the bundles of grain so no one comes and robs them at night. Ruth knows she can find him there. And she goes and she speaks to him. And it's there that he promises redemption. He's present. He's active. He's a working man. He's, he's uh, not only working, yes, in his fields and diligent in uh, protecting his assets, but he's active in pursuing the redemption of this vulnerable pair of women, Naomi and Ruth. Naomi knows his character, and so she can say at the end of chapter 3, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. The man will not rest but we'll settle the matter today. Do, do you not want to, at one level, going back to talking about the guys a minute ago, do you not want to be that type of person that someone knows something needs to be done, it can be parked with you, and they can do so with the total confidence he won't let it rest. He will not rest until job done. It's a good thing to say about a person. It's a great compliment. But when we're thinking about our need for redeemers, and in fact a redeemer, to the exclusion of all other potential redeemers, we need someone who can, we can say, He will not rest. His hand is not weak, his arm is not short, he will not withhold, he, he, he will not keep himself back from pursuing that which we need. He will take action. And furthermore, we see that Boaz is sacrificial because the very things that the potential redeemer turned redemption down for, Boaz embraces. It's all true. It's still the same. If Boaz had an inheritance to pass on and anyone to pass it on to? Well, that's, that's gone now. He's taking responsibility for another line. And legally speaking, Boaz comes to an end. Guess who continues? Malon, dead in Moab. 
And then we begin to think that the potential redeemer might have been onto something. And we can understand that this man is basically rendering himself legally, his line, his inheritance, legally extinct. So that a dead man who wasn't particularly uh, faithful to the covenant and the promise of the land can be more or less resurrected. That's what, I mean, if you're not following, you might not have been here when we were talking about Judah and Tamar. That's, what, that's what's going on. Go back and listen to that sermon. It will explain this thing called Levirate marriage. It's um, that the in-laws take responsibility for the sonless widows. He's present, he's active, he's sacrificial. And of course, we see that he's successful. This was the custom we're told in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging that odd thing that you were wondering about. Uh, one draws off his sandal and gives it to the other. This was the manner of attesting in Israel, this exchange of sandals. Uh, so, so when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi, all that belonged to Elimelech, and all that belonged to Kilion, and all that belonged to Malon. So he has purchased what he wasn't obligated to purchase. He wasn't obligated. He didn't have any legal demand upon him to buy this. The other man did. But the other man couldn't and wouldn't. So Boaz steps up and he pays the price that this man couldn't pay. Boaz assesses the value and the cost and he, metaphorically speaking, takes up his cross and he acts for the redemption of these who are in need. Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. Some of you were like, oh, I bought to be my wife. I don't like thinking about women as property. This is a story, okay? And it's set thousands of years ago. So don't get hung up on what your perspective of the legal customs of another nation thousands of years ago were. Um, that you miss the redemptive power of this story. This woman was vulnerable. She was destitute. She had nothing. He's not commenting on the rightness or the wrongness of the system. What he's saying is that she was in that system and this was the way to save her within that. Boaz steps into that system and he works for her salvation. He identifies... Look, look, look at this. Think, think, and, and I want you to see someone else in this. He identifies the one needing redemption. Or the ones needing redemption. He submits himself to the requirements of the law. He humbles himself to act in the interests of others, not himself. He seeks to satisfy the demands of justice for Naomi and Ruth, acting shrewdly with wisdom. 
He takes responsibility for their redemption with all the associated costs, with all the associated obligations. Ruth, a Moabitess, is going to become his wife. She's the daughter of a cursed people. She's the widow of a man who died young. And people might have done the math. Cursed people, husband died young, What's going to happen to Boaz if he marries her? There's been a change in Ruth. Spiritually, she's, she's already left Moab. She is spiritually entered into this place of promise. She is already spiritually dwelling in the house of bread, Bethlehem. She's in a fruitful place, Ephratha, but she's still vulnerable. Boaz acts for her redemption. Oh, at Ruth, we might say, she, she's young, nice lady. Naomi, the bitter mother-in-law. Less appealing. He takes it on, all of it. The children that they would have if Boaz had any other children previously, and we're, there's no indicators in the text that he was married or had other children, but um, they, would, they would have to go to the, the, the wayside. I mean, their needs would be met, but that they were not going to be the priority for the inheritance. Boaz and Ruth's children would receive the inheritance, not Boaz and some other persons. And the name that would legally be preserved would be that of Malon, the son of Elimelech. Boaz is willing... Notice the, con the, the contrast again between the redeemers. Boaz is willing for his name to be forgotten. To preserve the name of a young man who was childless and lay dead in a place he shouldn't have been in to start with. By doing so, Boaz legally ransoms the oppressed, raises the dead, and prepares an inheritance. Does that remind you of someone? Does, does, does it remind you of one who from before the foundations of the earth identified those needing redemption? He predestined us. He pursues us. He purchases us. He regenerates us. He perpetuates us. That's what He does. He, he from before the foundations of the earth, identified a people for Himself. And from heaven He came and sought her to be his holy bride. As the old hymn says, and for her life, he bought her, and for her life, he died. He purchases us. He pays the price. He satisfies the demands of eternal justice. And he pays the price that will set us free, that will bring us into his family. He regenerates us. He raises the dead. We who were dead in our trespasses and sins are raised to walk in newness of life. And we are perpetuated, given the Holy Spirit as a seal, as a sign of our inheritance, which we didn't have. We didn't have a right to. But now we are brought into an inheritance and we're given a seal which preserves us until we gain possession of it. You check it out in Ephesians chapter 1 this afternoon. You have the whole thread of things from beginning to end, from past to the present to the future. Jesus Christ is our Redeemer. He is not a potential Redeemer. He is an actual Redeemer. 
He actually accomplished and has applied and will apply all that He intended to by the power of the Holy Spirit. We do not have to guess about Jesus. We do not have to wait in anxiety and uncertainty about Jesus. Jesus saves to the uttermost all who come to Him. And so you can trust in Him. You can leave it with Him. You can wait. You can wait on Jesus. And He who waits on the Lord will renew His strength. And yes, you will find rest for your souls. Salvation full and free. That's good news, isn't it? We're, we're not the redeemers. We're not the saviors. We're not the heroes. And one of the reasons perhaps this morning you might be finding yourself in a broken place is trying to be that which you are not. Seeking to be that which you are not. Or looking for it in someone else who is not. Jesus saves. He redeems. Ransoms, heals, restores, and forgives us. There's one other thing I want you to see from the, the story, and that's witnesses to redemption. We've seen the potential redeemer. We've seen the actual, the actual redeemer. We now see witnesses to redemption. A legal transaction, after all, does require witnesses, does it not? And so Boaz makes sure that he has them. He goes to the gate. Now, you need to understand this because it will affect how you read other passages. I remember Proverbs chapter 31 um, makes a comment about, the, well, it's talking about the, uh, this godly woman, you know, and it's a beautiful passage, and it talks about this man sitting in the gates, and um, I remember um, uh, having conversation, multiple times this has happened, it always cracks me up, she's working hard, right, she's, she's looking after her family and all of this, and we get to that Part, and there's always someone in the crowd who says, right, yeah, something's ever changed. Woman's doing all the work. Man sat around at the gates. Guys, he was a lawyer. He was really working hard. That's basically, he was like, he was like the mayor, the counselor. So he was a big man about town, working hard with technical stuff. And he was able to do that because she was so diligent in other ways, not least the administration of various home affairs that otherwise would distract and bog him down. Okay, so he's working hard. Boaz isn't going to the gate to chill out. He's going because the husband of that Proverbs 31 man is, is sat there and there's nine others like him. And he calls these 10 guys who, whose wives are being diligent at home and they're at the gate doing their, their business. He calls them elders of the town to Come and bear witness to this legal transaction, okay? So they're, they're there, they're watching, and it's not just them, but there's this other host of witnesses who gather around. You can imagine it. You see it out and about. There'll be something happening. It could be a construction site or a um, uh, you know, incident happening on the high road, and there's always some um, older men, only in the region of 60-plus, who just sort of walk up like this. They just, they're just watching, and it's, uh, it's like a, um, a spectator sport, whatever's happening. Um, it's generally the, the gents that um, sit around tables all day in, uh, in the Pret um, having conversations. So these guys, they, they walk up, and they're watching. And they see Boaz working through things. They hear the legal detail, and then the shoe comes off. 
Now, normally, when a shoe comes off in our culture, gets their shoe off, and it's like, you know, Boaz, you know, is about to, to get some licks. It's a legal transaction, and the shoe is handed to Boaz, and it says, okay, it's more like the exchange of shirts at the end of a football match. You know, job done. It's over. We've, we've, we've worked through it. We've sorted it out. We play to the end, and it's over, and we have respect, and we're agreed. It's the way they're attesting to this legal formality that's accomplished. The people at the gates and the elders respond to Boaz, we are witnesses. And notice what they say. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Lee. We'll stop in there in a, a moment. Who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So it's the people at the gate who are called to be witness. Ten elders. There's the wider public that's looking on. Their response is overwhelmingly positive, celebratory, and filled with blessing. They do not regard Ruth as a Moabitess. Do you notice that? All throughout this book, Ruth is, is the Moabite, the Moabite, or, or um, even Moabitess. And one can hear it almost with a twist of the tongue, a curl of the lip. You know, it's like she has to be identified by her ethnicity. Is that... Absolutely vital information that she get known by who she is and conversely who she is not. But now, what do they call her? The woman who is coming into your house. She was from a cursed people. And whenever they said Moabite or Moabitess, they were saying that. But when they say the woman who is coming into your house, they are saying she's blessed. And we bless her. And they're not satisfied with their own witness. So the people at the gate call upon the people in the grave long ago to also bear witness, more or less. May she be like Rachel and Lee. Do you see that? I don't think you do. Rachel and Lee, who they identify as uh, the, the, you know, may, may she be like Rachel and Lee, who together built up the house of Israel. These were the women that Jacob married, right? And, and they had the children that became the 12 tribes of Israel. Ruth was a Moabitess. You see the redemptive reversal? Moab, some of you didn't. Weren't in, go back. First sermon in the backstory series, Sunday afternoons, we talked about Lot and his daughters. Lot and his unnamed daughters who sexually took advantage of him at best in the cave while he was drunk and unalert and all of that. And what, what, what happened? One gave birth to a son named Moab. So they are saying, not Moabitess, but woman. They're saying, not Lot's daughters and their children, Moab and Ammon, but Rachel and Leah. 
who were mothers to Israel. That's what redemption does. It changes everything. It turns it all around. It turns the world upside down. But in turning someone's world upside down, it turns it right side up. Someone whose world was upside down. It's brought into a place of right relationship and renewal and hope. The unnamed daughters of Lot are not mentioned. They fall by the wayside with the unknown and unnamed Redeemer. May Ruth be like Rachel and Lee. And, and, and do you see that also? They call upon Perez. May this be that like, may your house be like the house of Perez. Go back and listen to the Judah and Tamar sermon. Perez, his mother disguised herself as a prostitute, and his father was her father-in-law. And she knew that if she just dressed a certain way and stood by the roadside, everything would fall into place. And she was doing that for uh, uh, justice, but it is quite a sordid story nonetheless. It's not really a promising start, is it? It's not a name that you would expect to find in a blessing. And yet here he is, just that. A historic witness of how God can turn it around. You know, um, uh, Perez had a, a brother, and his brother actually, uh, Zara, a lot of his people died. You know how they died? Well, Zara's descendant was a man named Achan. And after they... Uh, brought Jericho down to the ground. Achan stole some things that they were supposed to offer to the Lord as a sacrifice and hid it and kept lying about it. And so he and his whole family paid the price for that. They, they all died. Yeah. So we don't want to be like Zerah. But Boaz is a living testimony to the redemptive power of God in the line of Perez because Boaz is descended from Perez. No Perez, no Boaz. May, 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 may your house be like his house. One that also raises a dead line because Tamar's husband died and then her second husband died and then the third one wasn't given to her like he was supposed to be legally. And so her story is one of redemption as well and her dead husband who really was evil, we're told. And so God took his life. He was evil. We're not told how or what, but he was evil. But in the redemptive purposes of God, he had a line through Perez. Malon will have a line through Boaz and Ruth. The question at the end of chapter 3 was, will he do it? The answer of chapter 4 is, won't he do it? The question of your life may have been, will he do it? And you can testify, if you have found redemption in Jesus Christ, won't he do it? But perhaps you're here today and the question is still, will he do it? Can he? Will he? Turn it all around. Can he? Will he? Redeem my life. Can he? Will he? Sort me out. Can he? Will he? Renew me, revive me, refresh me, restore me. Give me a new life. And the answer is He can and He will. 
if you go to Him. Go, go to the One who called us brothers and sisters, although He created us. Go to the One who went outside the gate to redeem us. And in the legal exchange there, He did not take up a shoe. He took up a cross and satisfied the demands not of a, a, a town's justice or family justice in some sort of family court of law, but, but the demands of eternal divine justice which would have condemned all of us. Go to the One who, who is kinsman redeemer of His people who fulfilled the requirements of the law, satisfied the demands of justice, extended the hands of undeserved everlasting kindness and love, raised us to life, and brings us into the rights and privileges of a family that we didn't have any right to. Like Elimelech, he died, but like Boaz, he lives. Go to Jesus, Messiah of the Jews, Savior of the world, back to Bethlehem. Father, we ask this morning that you would help us to this Christmas season to go back to Bethlehem and see our Lord, our Savior, lying in a manger, joining us in frail humanity. But to see him also reigning forever and ever. Savior, Master, Lord, wonderful counselor. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We ask, Lord, that you would help us, that you would save us, that you would sanctify us, that you would continually lead us to worship the one who is worthy, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.